Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Holy Father, we humbly ask as we reopen your holy word that we will hear it not in vain today, but that we will hear it with power from on high, effectually. We pray, Lord, that your word will run unhindered. That by the power of the Spirit, it will reach every heart gathered here in this sacred assembly. Reaching, affecting, growing, sanctifying your people today. And Lord, we pray that as we will be considering one of the great and godly virtues of the Spirit of God, that of meekness, Lord, give us truly the ears to hear this and help us to really understand what this virtue is And to be honest with ourselves today, in the light of what your word shows us, concerning how either great or small this grace may be in our lives as your people, but most assuredly where we all need to grow in greater meekness. We trust in you, blessed Father, for such mercy and grace for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in his name we ask all these things. Amen. Well, I do invite you to take the word of God and let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. As we will be considering this morning what I have entitled the grace of Christian submission. The grace of Christian submission. We're going to begin reading at verse 1 of Matthew 5, reading to verse 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so reads the infallible inerrant, sufficient word of the living, eternal God. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 62, our Lord Jesus made a searching declaration regarding the demands of what it means to follow him. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The context of these words was in response to a young man who announced his desire to follow Christ, but with one condition, that he would first be allowed to say farewell to his family. Now, his request certainly seemed to be both innocent and harmless. What's wrong with wanting to say goodbye to one's family? But Jesus, knowing the hearts of all people, saw much more in the man's request than mere parting goodbyes with his family. At the heart of the man's wish was a divided loyalty. While he expressed desire to be a disciple of Christ, and that desire sounded very sincere, yet it did not meet the demands of true discipleship. In short, the young man, listen closely, the young man 
was unwilling to surrender everything, even loyalty to his family for the sake of Jesus Christ. Hence, Jesus exposed the man's divided heart by saying, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, what's the point our Lord is making by these words? Well, it's simply this. If we allow anything to hold us back from full allegiance to Christ, then we have no part in God's kingdom. A true conversion to Jesus Christ is manifested by a heart that is ready and willing to abandon all for Christ. Once a believer has placed his hand to the plow of love and service to Christ, he cannot and he will not look back to what he has left behind. But for that person, for that person whose, whose heart is still hanging on to their old life, whose love, pleasure, and loyalties are captivated by the things of this world rather than the things of Christ, then they cannot claim any part in God's kingdom. Teasing this point out further from Luke 9.62, J.C. Ryle made these very sobering and searching observations. We learn from this saying that it is impossible to serve Christ with a divided heart. If we are looking back to anything in this world, we are not fit to be disciples. Those who look back, like Lot's wife, want to go back. Jesus will not share his throne with anyone, no, not with our dearest relatives. He must have all our heart or none. Well, with this in mind, I want us to return to our present series in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. In this passage, Jesus gives eight declarations which describe the authentic character of those who truly belong to God's kingdom. We know these declarations as the Beatitudes. And what the Beatitudes show us are the spiritual qualities of the new nature that is resident in every Christian. Thus, as we look at each of the Beatitudes, we must understand, as I've said for the last two weeks, that the Beatitudes give us a whole picture of the Christian life. From the beginning of our conversion to Christ and then on for the rest of our life in Christ, the Beatitudes sent forth different snapshots of what God's grace has fashioned us to be. So then, as we work through each Beatitude, we must ask ourselves, as a matter of self-examination, is this true of me? Now, so far, we've only considered the first two of these eight Beatitudes, which are recorded in verses 3 and 4. The first Beatitude is where salvation begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit is a description of every sinner who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. They come seeing and recognizing that they are spiritually and morally bankrupt apart from God. They see their sinfulness for what it is, and they fly to Christ as their only hope of salvation from it. Furthermore, this initial revelation of their sinful state goes on to unfold in greater depth as they grow closer to Christ in their Christian walk. Because the closer they draw to Christ, the more unholy they realize they are left to themselves. Hence, every true believer in Christ is someone who is poor in spirit. But combined with being poor in spirit, a Christian is also someone who mourns over their sin. This is what we saw in our last study from the second beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Having come to to the realization of their spiritual poverty due to their sin, their heart breaks with contrition over the fact that they have sinned against God. 
This is what spiritual poverty leads to. The poor in spirit become those who mourn. Or to say it another way, seeing your sinfulness for what it is before God results in a heart that is broken with godly sorrow. In other words, in the heart of a true Christian is a genuine sadness over what he has done by sinning against God. Moreover, it is a sadness and sorrow that, listen, that does not go away. It does not go away as long as we live in our fallen bodies in this fallen world. For those who mourn are those who go on mourning as a constant mark of their lives. The reason for this is due to the fact that part of the Christian life is a progressive self-discovery of all the sin that remains in us even though we are now redeemed. To say this very simply, a Christian is someone who feels the daily grief of daily sins. They feel the daily grief of daily sins. However, this godly sorrow has a redemptive effect. On the one hand, it produces repentance, according to 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. And on the other hand, it preaches to broken hearts the gospel of God's grace in Christ. So Jesus says, for those who mourn, they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. And this comfort is spiritual in nature. It is the comfort of the gospel that reminds us again and again what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We are therefore reminded of God's forgiveness of all our sins and his promise to one day deliver us completely from the very presence of our sinfulness. So then in these first Beatitudes, we see that a Christian is someone who is both humble and contrite. Humble and contrite. They are ever trusting in Jesus Christ as their only salvation and growing increasingly distrusting of their own natural wisdom and abilities. In fact, as spiritually impoverished and full of godly sorrow, a Christian sees himself as nothing but Christ as everything. Their sinful pride, therefore, continues to take one death blow after another as they realize more and more their utter and complete dependence upon God for salvation and life as a whole. Now, for our study this morning, we turn to the third beatitude, which is recorded here in Matthew 5 and verse 5. Read it again. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. From this passage, there are three questions I want us to raise. First, what does it mean to be meek? Second, how do we know if we are meek? And third, what do the meek gain from God? Let's consider each of these questions in turn. To begin with, we ask the most basic question. What does it mean to be meek? Now, of all the Beatitudes, let me just go ahead and say this up front. This one Beatitude regarding meekness is perhaps the most misunderstood and misapplied. It is therefore of utmost importance that we begin our definition of this grace by understanding what it's not. Okay? What, what it is not. When Jesus declares, blessed are the meek, he was not describing someone, for instance, who is lazy. In other words, meekness does not mean indolence or being idle or simply indecisive. Also, to be meek is not a description of someone who is emotionally flabby. This means to be cowardice as opposed to courageous. This is what most people think about meekness. It is nothing more than weakness of character and conviction. But nothing could be further from the truth when talking about the God-given grace of meekness. Furthermore, to be meek is not describing someone who is merely nice. I'm so glad to say that. Someone who is just merely nice. You know, there are people in the world 
There are people in the world who are just naturally nice, easygoing, very amiable. I mean, that's just their temperament. That's just their natural personality. But let me say this. That has nothing to do with meekness. Nothing to do with meekness. And then on top of this, to be meek is not compromising standards of righteousness for the sake of peace. I will be saying much more about this matter when we get to the beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers. I can't wait for that one. A lot of misunderstanding about that. But quickly, back here. You have people, you have people who posture themselves with the motto. And it's not just in the world, it's even in the church. They posture themselves with the motto, peace at any price. Peace at any price. Rather than having disagreements or making any distinctions that might offend, let's just settle on live and let live. Just live and let live. But please understand this. This kind of approach to life and relationships is not the spirit of biblical meekness. Because if you are like that, I can assure you, you are neither meek nor are you a peacemaker. So, summing up then, when our Lord said, blessed are the meek, negatively, listen, he was not describing a spineless, indolent, limp-wristed, weak-kneed, compromising wimp. That is not someone who's meek. Despite how popular this idea may be about meekness, yet it, listen, it's nothing but a slanderous picture of one of the most precious virtues of God's saving grace. So what then is meekness? What does it mean to be meek in the context of Matthew 5? In verse 5. Well, in the first place, to answer this question positively, we need to emphasize that Jesus is not describing a characteristic which is natural to human nature. Matthew 5 and verse 5 is referring to a work of God's grace. Indeed, we have Galatians 5.23 that helps us see this very clearly. Galatians 5.23 connects meekness to the fruit of the Spirit. To the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, this is something produced by the Spirit of God in the child of God through the grace of God because of the Son of God. Simply put, only those sinners whom God saves will be meek. So meekness is exclusively a Christian characteristic. Exclusively. But as a Christian characteristic, what is, it, what is it for a Christian to be meek? Well, to begin with, the term our Lord uses here, translated as meek, comes from a Greek noun that basically means mild or soft. It could be used then in classical Greek literature to describe a soothing medicine or a soft breeze. In other instances, we, we can find it being used to depict breaking the wild spirit and will of a cult or other animals, so that they could be useful for work. But as a quality of the new nature in a Christian, meekness has to do, now listen to this, it has to do with an internal disposition of a submissive and quiet spirit. An internal disposition of a submissive and quiet spirit. Putting this in a more theological definition, Matthew Henry said this about meek, about the meek. He said the meek are those who quietly submit themselves before God to his word, to his rod, who follow his instructions and comply with his designs and are gentle toward men. Fanning this out in greater detail, consider how Sinclair Ferguson illustrated what it means to be meek. Ferguson said it is the humble strength that belongs to the man who has Learn to submit to difficulties 
difficult experiences and difficult people, knowing that in everything God is working for his good. The meek man, and listen to what Ferguson writes here. He says, the meek man is the one who has stood before God's judgment and abdicated all his supposed rights. Well, that doesn't sound very American. Hmm, yeah, it doesn't, does it? Ferguson says, he has learned in gratitude for God's grace to submit himself to the Lord and to be gentle with sinners. So on the heels of being poor in spirit and mourning over one's sins, it is not difficult to see why Jesus would describe such a person as meek. Meekness is the given result of a heart that has been broken and softened over the realization that we are spiritually bankrupt sinners who stand in opposition to God in desperate need of His grace. Meekness, then, is a gracious work of God in those whom he saves, whereby the heart and will of the believing sinner, now listen, the heart and will of the believing sinner is made pliant, tractable, yielding, and teachable. Teachable. Meekness Therefore, is the complete opposite of a stubborn, self-assertive, self-serving, prideful self-will. As Martin Lloyd-Jones noted, the meek man is not proud of himself. He does not in any sense glory in himself. He feels that there is nothing in himself of which he can boast. It also means that he does not assert himself. The meek man likewise does not demand anything for himself. He does not take all his rights as claims. He does not make demands for his position, his privileges, his possessions, his status in life. And at this point we're all wondering, am I even saved? Well, the bottom line is this, beloved. In the grace of meekness, in the grace of meekness, listen, we see where a Christian is someone who is finished with himself all together. A Christian is someone who has finished with themselves altogether, all he is, all he does, all he has is given over to God in complete submission. He doesn't look to Christ only as Savior, but he yields his life to Christ as Lord. Jesus is his master, his sovereign, his king. He is at God's disposal to be used in whatever way pleases the Lord. Thus, in the spirit of meekness, a Christian says to Christ, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Didn't we just sing that? We just sang that. The question is, do we believe it? You see, this is the expression of meekness manifested in a Christian. It is manifested at the initial stage of conversion wherein the believing sinner turns away from his sinful life to follow Christ as Lord. And it is a grace growing in the believer through the process of divine sanctification where the remaining sin of pride 
is steadily put to death and we become a people more and more God-centered, less and less self-centered. But perhaps the best way to understand meekness, in addition to everything that's been said so far, let's just illustrate it from Scripture. Specifically, we can see what meekness is by two biblical portraits of two very different men. First, there's the portrait of meekness in a fallen man, namely Moses. Moses. According to Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, Moses was called the meekest man of his day. But the story of his life shows us that this was not his natural disposition, nor was it something that came to him all at once. Rather, the meekness of Moses was a lifelong work of God's grace, shaping and pruning this man with great patience. For instance, in Moses' early years, we see him as a proud, self-confident, self-assertive man. In fact, he was a man who believed God was calling him to deliver his Jewish kinsmen from Egyptian bondage. The only problem, however, with this sense of God's call was that Moses took it upon himself to deliver Israel in his way by his strength. And we know what happened. The plan Moses conceived failed miserably, and his Jewish kinsmen did not see him as their great deliverer. But God was not finished with Moses. The grace of meekness would grow in Moses, but it would take, are you ready? It would take 40 long years. 40 long, listen, 40 long years in the loneliness and isolation of the desert. 40 years of tending sheep rather than shepherding the people of Israel. But it was during these long and lonesome years that God was subduing and breaking Moses as a man of self-confidence and self-assertiveness. God was teaching Moses patience, humility, and how to submit to God's will. God was preparing Moses for the true call he would receive to be Israel's true deliverer. And once that call came from within the burning bush, how interesting to see Moses' reaction. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 and following. Gone was the pride of the early Moses. Instead, Moses was doing what? He was trembling. He was shaking and completely reluctant to accept God's call. Why? Because Moses was a broken, humble man who could not fathom how God could possibly use someone like him for such an enormous calling. Of course, it took 40 years to get him there. You've got to remember that. That's real history. Moses, through God's grace, though, had become a man of meekness. He was finished with himself. If God was to do this work, it would have to be God doing it in Moses. For Moses had lost all confidence in Moses. Yet that loss of self-confidence drew him to trust and submit to God in full. Now, what should we learn about meekness from Moses and, and that for God to work this grace in our lives will take the breaking of our pride. It will take the destroying our sense of self-sufficiency and God utterly humbling us by his mighty hand before he uses us for his glory. But how does God do this? How does he do this? No differently than he did with Moses. The Lord sends trials. He reveals the secret ambitions we have hidden in our hearts. And he uncovers the reliance we have upon ourselves. Then as God patiently changes us, he develops and works within us this meekness of character. And such is the biblical portrait of meekness in a fallen man. 
But the next portrait of meekness I want us to see from Scripture is not in a fallen man, but it is in the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's very significant that meekness is virtually the only personal quality Jesus drew attention to about himself. Have you ever, have you ever even picked up on that? Ever noticed that when you read the Gospels? Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus describes himself as what? Meek and lowly in heart. That's not what somebody else said about Jesus. That's what Jesus said about Jesus. He said, I am meek and lowly in heart. But, but how do we see meekness manifested in Christ? Well, in the first place, the meekness of Jesus is certainly seen in his complete and total submission to do the will of his Father. Complete and total submission to do the will of his Father. Nothing would ever deter or distract Christ from this. What did he tell his disciples in John 4, 34? He told them that his food was to do the will of his Father. In John 5, 19, Jesus declared to the crowds that he could do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Hence, this, hence there was no self-assertion in Christ, no self-reliance. His life was lived in total dependence and obedience to the Father's will. Moreover, even in the hour of his greatest trial, facing the cross and all that meant for him as our sin bearer, what does he say to his father in the garden of Gethsemane? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Total, complete submission to the will of the Father. That's meekness. That is meekness. In the second place, the meekness of Jesus is seen in the way he treated others. In the way he treated others. He was meek and lowly of heart toward men. Describing this manward meekness of Christ, Isaiah tells us in chapter 42 of his prophecy that Jesus did not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. This means that by his coming into the world, he did not draw attention to himself. He did not come with pomp or fanfare. He did not seek publicity or celebrity. His coming was quiet. It was quiet. Furthermore, Isaiah also describes the meekness of Christ toward men in these memorable words. Isaiah 42, verse 3, listen to this. This description of Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. The Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote an entire book on that one text. It's a great, wonderful Wonderful exposition. What does it mean? What do these words in Isaiah 42.3 mean? What is this telling us about Jesus? These words are giving us a picture of how Jesus dealt with sinners during his earthly ministry. He did not take advantage of them or seek to destroy them in their vulnerable and broken state. Instead, our Lord's mission was to redeem sinners. To save sinners. Think of how he handled the woman caught in adultery. Rather than wanting to destroy her like the men who dragged her out to stone her, Jesus what? He pitied her. He pitied her. He was gentle with her. She was a bruised reed that he refused to break. Instead, he forgave her and called her to repent, sending her away restored. Our Lord was meek toward Sinners. Why, even when he drove the money changers out of the temple, John chapter 2, he showed meekness. Have you ever thought about this? He showed meekness even in that, that very physical and even violent act. Our Lord showed meekness. You know, how did he do that? Well, on the one hand, he showed meekness there by defending 
the glory of his father whose house of worship was being desecrated. So there was nothing self-centered about our Lord's actions there. But on the other hand, he showed meekness by not destroying the money changers themselves, the persons. While Jesus brought ruin to their way of commerce, he did not lay a hand on any of them personally. A bruised reed he will not break. Smoking flax he will not quench. That is the meekness of our Savior. And that is how he treats you and I, his people. Now, what we should learn from this is really, really very simple. This is the kind of meek character God wants to develop in each of us. In each of us. This is, this is the kind of meekness God is developing. God is conforming us into the image of Christ. And part of that glorious image is Christ-like meekness. But if this grace of meekness is growing in us, then the next question we need to raise is this. What should we see? Well, answering this question leads us now to consider our second major point. How do we know if, we're, if we are meek? We'll answer this question in two ways. First, our meekness toward God. Our meekness toward God. If the grace of meekness is growing in us as believers, then we will be meek toward God. And this Godward meekness will be manifested in a twofold manner. First of all, we will be in submission to God's will. Specifically, when, when under whatever providential dealings God has for us, whether easy or hard, we will resign ourselves to his will without murmuring or complaining. Instead, we'll be like King David. When faced with the public cursing of a man named Shimei, David rebuked his soldiers for wanting to kill Shimei and declared, let him alone, this is David speaking to his soldiers, let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him, perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. Now what was David doing? He was showing meekness. He was saying, in effect, let Shimei say what he will of me, for this is God's doing, and I will trust God to work it for my good than for my ill. David had resigned himself to the will of God rather than wanting to do violence to Shimei, and he had all the power and authority to do it. David knew that this man could not utter a word that God had not already ordained. David, therefore, was a man in submission to God's will. He was a man of meekness. And if we are meek, then this kind of submission to God's will shall show up in whatever circumstances we face. As the Puritan Thomas Watson once said, the meek-spirited Christian says thus, let God do what he will with me, let him carve out what condition he pleases, I will submit. And we all in here know that is not easy to do. That's not easy. We can say it. I'm going to submit everything to the Lord, but I can assure you the Lord will test your submission. And he'll test it in ways that you never imagined. Because submission to God is total. It's total. The Lord will have no rivals. He will have no rivals. What's the first commandment in the Decalogue? You shall have no other gods before me. He will have no rivals. He is jealous for our worship of him. Second of all, our meekness toward God will also be seen in this. 
We will be conformable to God's word. We will be conformable to God's word. Now, what does this mean? Very simply, we will bring ourselves completely under the authority of God's word so that his commands, his principles, his precepts will have the greatest influence over how we think, feel, talk, and live. Consider the direct connection this has with meekness as expressed in James 1.21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. How are we to receive the word of God? The scripture says, with meekness. With meekness. What does that mean? This means letting the word of God ply our hearts and shape our wills in the direction and design of God's truth. It's the picture of the psalmist in Psalm chapter 1, who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight, his joy, his treasure is in the law of the Lord, that is in the instruction of the Lord, on which he meditates day and night. So rather than letting the world shape his thinking and determine his direction and captivate his affections, the meek Christian places himself under under God's word to completely order and govern and change his life. This is what it means to be meek toward God. We are in submission to his will, and we are conformable to his word. But the proof of meekness is not only in how we relate to God. There's also a meekness toward men, men in general, believers, unbelievers. Ephesians 4.2, Colossians 3.12, both call every believer in Christ to clothe themselves with meekness in the manner of how we relate to each other. But how is this done? Well, to sum up this point, let me quote at length A.W. Pink's description for the way in which we should see meekness in our dealings with each other. Here's what A.W. Pink wrote. Inasmuch as meekness is that spirit which has been schooled to mildness by discipline and suffering and brought into sweet resignation to the will of God, it causes the believer to bear patiently those insults and injuries which he receives at the hands of his fellows and makes him ready to accept instruction or admonition from the least of saints, moving him to think more highly of others than himself. Meekness enables the Christian to endure provocations without being inflamed by them. He remains cool when others get heated. Hmm. He remains cool when others get heated. If you're walking in meekness, you will not be quick-tempered. You will not have a short fuse. It will take a lot to provoke you. And if as a Christian... A quick temper is your besetting sin? Then you clearly have a lot of growing up to do in meekness. A lot. Now, it must be said at this point that although in our meekness toward other people we we bear patiently with personal injuries and do not seek private revenge... Yet Christian meekness will not show such passiveness when the glory and the fidelity and the cause of God is at stake. Now this is a really, really important qualification. Meekness may cause us to turn the other cheek when we are personally insulted. But it will not allow us to compromise with sin and evil which defies Almighty God. This is why, as I pointed out earlier, our meek and lowly Jesus 
drove out the money changers who were defiling God's house. There was nothing passive about our Lord in that. And yet, what you see there, as I've already shown you, was an example of perfect meekness. Zeal for God's house had consumed our Lord, according to John 2.17. God-given meekness, therefore, will stand up for God's honor. It will stand up for God's honor. When God's glory is impeached, we must have a zeal which is as hot as fire. This, therefore, is a crucial tension that we must always keep in check. When personally insulted, when personally insulted, we bear with it. We bear with it. But when God is insulted, his word, his name defamed, defiled, then the church must rise up, renouncing, rebuking, and calling for repentance. But nevertheless, even with that very critical qualification about meekness, we must be very clear as to how it will show up in our lives as believers. If we are growing in meekness then toward God, we'll be submitted to his will and conforming to his word. And toward men, we will patiently endure personal injury, not seeking revenge or maliciously wanting to carry out violence. In other words, we'll show a gentle and mild temper toward others. Like our Lord Bruce Reed, we will not break. Smoking flax, we will not quench. We will seek to treat others with the gentleness and patience with which God treats us. And we all know, as I say that, we all know there is nothing natural in ourselves about that. That takes every bit of God's grace to do. Every bit of God's grace. I'm not standing up here talking to you about moralism. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps Try harder, do better. That is not at all what I'm preaching. This is a work of the Spirit. This is a work of God in the heart of His people. But to treat others, and let's get very specific, to treat fellow Christians as Christ Jesus treats us, with the gentleness, with the patience, with with that tenderness that Jesus treats us with. That takes nothing but grace. you got to have grace, God's grace, to do that. Because all of us left to ourselves will be tearing each other apart. I mean, think about it. It's a wonder all of us are even here together because I'm sure that if left to ourselves being really honest we probably would not choose some of you know some others as our personal friends just in our natural selves what in the world has us here in the first place and what in the world is the explanation for the fellowship and the communion that we have together it's nothing in us. It's nothing in ourselves. It is purely the grace of God. It's what God has done, not what we've done. Which is why, which is why, when we think about how we treat each other, we, we, we had better be thinking about that with an earnest petition, God give me the grace to so do. Because it's going to take his grace to not break the bruised reed, 
to not quench, to not quench the smoking flax. It's going to take grace to do that. Well, in our final consideration about meekness, returning to our text in Matthew 5 and verse 5, we raise this question. What do the meek gain from God? When our Lord declares, blessed are the meek, he follows this up with these incredible words, for they shall inherit the earth. The verb translated here as inherit refers to the receiving of one's allotted portion or their rightful inheritance. And for the meek, and only the meek, who of course is every true believer in Christ, our rightful inheritance, according to Matthew 5 and verse 5, is all the earth. It's all the earth. Now, how do we understand this precious promise of God? Well, there is a twofold fulfillment of this promise, a twofold fulfillment of this promise. First, there is a present fulfillment, a present fulfillment. Resigned to God and whatever his will has determined for our life in this world, the spirit of meekness enables us to get more enjoyment out of our present earthly portion than an unbeliever could ever know with what he has. Indeed, with all he has. Having been delivered from a greedy and anxious disposition for earthly things, a Christian in meekness is satisfied with such things as he has. This is what we read in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 16. Listen to this. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Martin Lloyd-Jones expressed the matter like this. He said, a man who is truly meek, this is so good, a man who is truly meek is a man who is already content. A man who is truly meek is a man who is already content. And his contentment, his contentment is in knowing that God shall supply all his need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And since the earth belongs to God and is promised to his people as their rightful inheritance, then there is no place for worry or anxiety when it comes to the earthly things we need now. I think I preached about that a few weeks ago on Wednesday night. That's God's answer to anxiety. We have been given title to it by God's own sovereign will. And thus we will have what we need as he sees fit. Therefore, with this knowledge, the grace of meekness empowers us to be content. Thus we inherit the earth now in part as a matter of God providentially making provision for all our present needs. But when our Lord promised that the meek shall inherit the earth... There is, of course, a future fulfillment to these words. Revelation chapters 21 and 22 speaks of a new heavens, a new earth that will be ushered in at the return of Jesus Christ. And in this renewed world, all the ungodly and unrighteous shall be banished. They shall have no part. But for God's redeemed people, for the church of Jesus Christ... We shall inherit a renewed world, a world in which only righteousness shall dwell, and therefore a world in which there shall be no more sickness, no more hunger, no more poverty, hatred, strife, deception, division. For all that sin brought with its curse in the world under Adam's fall, God will wipe out forever when Jesus Christ comes back. Hence, not only does the meek-spirited Christian inherit the present earth, but being an heir of God and joint heir with Christ, he will inherit the new earth that is to come. Now, as we close this study, I want to remind you as to what is at the core of this work of grace. What is at the core? It is a submissive and pliable heart toward God. A submissive and pliable heart toward God. This is the proper 
and authentic disposition of the new nature which has been regenerated in us by the Holy Spirit. But, as I have pointed out, this submission to God is a work in progress. It's a work in progress. And all of us at that point should be going, man, am I glad to hear that. It's true. We're all a work in progress as God's people. None of us can claim, none of us can claim total, absolute surrender to God's will at all times. We know better by both the teaching of Scripture and our own personal experience. There is a war that rages within every Christian. A war between the flesh and the spirit. But in this conflict, we do have a responsibility to kill the stubbornness and pride of our flesh. We are commanded by God to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Therefore, through the power of the Holy Spirit, every Christian must daily be about the business of weakening, subduing, and killing those sins which wage war against our total submission to God's will. So then in light of this reality, here's the question I want to raise for our own self-examination. What area in your life have you not completely resigned to God's will? What area in your life have you not completely resigned to God's will? Is there a place in your life, dear Christian, where you have yet to say, not my will, Lord, but yours be done? Is there? Maybe it's with your family. Maybe it's with your present job or your future career. Maybe it's a relationship. A relationship that could be, listen, could either be helpful or harmful. Maybe it's just with your time. How much time do you really give to God personally, privately? And is all of your time, no matter, no matter where it's spent, consciously in submission to God's will and his design? In short, do you complain and murmur over your circumstances or do you give thanks in everything you know that is a command of scripture first thessalonians 5:18 in fact it tells us this is the will of god for you in christ jesus give thanks in everything the point is this is where meekness first shows up in our lives as Christians. This is where it first shows up. This is where it begins. It is in the surrender to God. This submission to God's will where we are willing and eager to obey God no matter what that obedience may cost us. For a young man named Robert Morrison... His submission to God's will deprived him of his family's favor and blessing. In 1801, Morrison knew without a shadow of a doubt that God had called him to the ministry of the gospel. But his parents strongly opposed his call. But despite their opposition, he pursued the education he needed out of his own personal earnings to prepare himself for the ministry. But when his mother died, his father made his appeal even stronger for Morrison to quit this foolish pursuit and come home to assist in the family business. Responding with very tender affection and a broken heart to his father, here's what Robert Morrison wrote. What can I do? I look to my God and my father's God. My father, my brothers, my sisters... I resign you all and myself to his care, who I trust cares for us. Are not our days few? You advise me to return home. I thank you for your kind intentions. May the Lord bless you for them. Having set my hand to the plow, you hear that? Having set my hand to the plow, 
I would not look back. It has pleased the Lord to prosper me so far. Following this letter, over the course of the next few years, Morrison finishes schooling, during which time the Lord developed in his servant the strong desire for foreign missions. And through a series of extraordinary providences, Robert Morrison was accepted as a missionary for the London Missionary Society and ordained in the Scots Church on January the 8th, 1807. His field of mission was China, where he arrived by ship on September the 4th, 1807. And by God's design and calling, now listen to this, by God's design and calling, Robert Morrison would be the first voice to ever proclaim the saving gospel of Jesus Christ in China. He would labor for 27 years. He saw some conversions to Christ during that time, but most importantly, most importantly, God would use Robert Morrison to give the Chinese what they never had in their own language, a translation of the whole Bible. This was the greatest legacy that God's first missionary to China would give the Chinese people. Now, what should we take away from this story? Well, very simply, look at the fruit of Robert Morrison's meekness toward God. Look at it. Look at the result of his submission to God. Once, once he put his hand to the plow to follow Christ, he did not look back. Even at the strongest appeals of his own family calling him to return home. By the means of his submission to the Lord, he was used to bring the light of God's word into a country that at that point in time had never heard the gospel. Well, here's the question for us. What will be the fruit of your submission? What will be the fruit of your submission? What will be the result of your surrender to God's will? Though our unconditional obedience to Christ will cost us many things in this life, yet the price we pay is merely temporal. It's temporal. What matters most is that God is glorified in our lives for which purpose he created us and saved us to be his people. That's what matters most. And the grace of meekness works in us to that very end. And so therefore we say, Sola Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for how incredibly searching your word is, how it searches our hearts, the deepest parts, knowing us as we really are, because it is your word, and you, Lord, know us as we really are. And Father, this morning in response to your word, we, we must ask your forgiveness by the blood and righteousness of your son, our Lord Jesus, for how prideful and stubborn and self-willed and self-assertive and quick-tempered we all may be to greater or lesser degree. Forgive us, blessed Father, for how slow we have been to learn to grow in meekness, for how slow we have been to yield ourselves entirely 
with the whole of our lives to your will and word. We pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would take what has been expounded from your word, take the truth of it all, and sanctify us by it, work in us a deeper and greater conviction of those sins that counter the grace of meekness and grow us, we pray, Lord God, grow us in a greater character of a meek and quiet spirit, a meek and pliant, teachable, tractable spirit. Father, we trust in you today for such a work of your grace and we thank you Lord that as you have given us the precious promise that having begun the good work in us you will complete it to the very day of Christ Jesus and so with the confidence Lord of that great promise from you to us your people we trust in you today for that work of sanctifying grace to so mature us in greater meekness and to mortify in us the pride and the anger and the selfishness that hinders that growth. For all these things, Lord, we commit to you for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name always and only we pray. Amen and amen.